Well, we had a little incident last weekend called Hurricane Matthew. And as a result, my plans are not the Lord's plans. Um, I leave tonight for Nigeria, and I will be gone for three and a half weeks. And my intention was to finish our series through the book of Ephesians today. Uh, But because the scheduling is now different, I'm not going to do that. So uh, instead, I was thinking about all of the things that have come together in the last two weeks and how we think about all of this and specifically how the Lord is working in the midst of it. And so I wanted to, um, uh, to take some time to think this morning about the providence of God. And uh, so instead of Ephesians, we will finish that when I get back. I promise I only have two more sermons in Ephesians and we'll be done there. Uh, But this morning, I want us to look at Acts 17. Um, And uh, we're going to look specifically at verses 26 through 28 and we'll look at a broader section. Uh, The title of my sermon this morning is God in Control. And our key words for our worshipers in training are sovereignty, providence, and good. In the 1980s, uh, one of the best-selling books was by a man uh, named Rabbi Harold Kushner. And he wrote a book, you've probably heard of the title, it's called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Now, Rabbi Kushner's book was described by many as touching and heartwarming and compassionate and a book for all humanity. Now, Kushner experienced a tragedy in his family And as he was on his personal journey to try and figure everything out and how that happened and where God was in the midst of it, he ended up writing his book and he gave it this title because he knew many people would resonate with what he was trying to say. And perhaps you've asked the very same question um, that that he was asking in the title of his book. Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, Kushner's focus in the book... Uh, was on Job, in the book of Job, and, and he concluded that the author of Job was, quote, forced to choose between a good God who is not totally powerful or a powerful God who is not totally good. And in the end, Kushner decided the author of Job, quote, chooses to believe in God's goodness. He wrote, God wants the righteous to live peaceful, happy lives, but sometimes even he can't bring that about. It is too difficult for God to keep cruelty and chaos from claiming their innocent lives. Now, you may be shaking your head at Kushner's conclusions, but he's not alone in believing what he writes. And it's not only those who don't claim to be Christians who say and and believe such things. We certainly expect non-Christians to deny God's sovereignty in any situation whatsoever. But what about you? How much of your view of the world and how God functions is shaped by by this idea that there are things that happen by accident? There are things that happen by chance? There are circumstances beyond God's control or Maybe God doesn't have control at all. I remember sitting in a Bible study one time and a girl was weeping because her father had just found out that he had a terminal illness. And in an attempt to comfort her, the Bible study leader told her, well, 
it's hard to know what to say at times like this. But one thing we can say for certain is that God is not in this. This is not from God. But is that the testimony of Scripture? There's no lack of questioning of God throughout the centuries when it comes to sickness and suffering and sorrow. Is God in control? Does He care about His creation? Now, perhaps you've thought about some of these things over the past week with all the devastation of a hurricane, lives lost, property destroyed, businesses losing millions of dollars in revenue. It was all very devastating in a lot of ways, but why didn't God just stop it from happening altogether? Was He not able or did He not care? Now, the assumption of many people is if God is powerful and good, why is there so much pain and suffering and heartache in the world? Have you ever thought about that question? It's a fair question. It is, as Kushner proposed, that God is either good and not all-powerful, or He's all-powerful and not all-good. Are those our only two conclusions? Is it even possible that both of these things could be true at the same time and everything around us in the world is as it is? To deny either of these realities is to deny significant and fundamental teachings of the Bible. Only a dishonest reader would conclude that the Bible teaches anything other than God being all-powerful or sovereign. Likewise, it's quite a stretch to conclude that the Bible teaches anything other than God being good. Now, theologically, these two realities come together in what we call the providence of God. And when it comes to the events of our lives, we generally don't have a problem with saying something like, in God's providence in 2002, I met my wife at a gathering of friends. And we fondly consider the blessings of our lives and the things God has done in our lives to bring about the the things that we rejoice in. However, it is not so common that you might hear someone say something like, in the providence of God, a hurricane swept through my town and took down my house and killed members of my family. Like Rabbi Kushner, we're reluctant to attribute the supposedly bad things in life having anything to do with the hand of God. We we weave this tangled web of questions, and a new problem even arises out of this as we, we think about it. If God is not involved in every aspect of our lives, what is He doing? Does He only intervene at certain times for certain reasons, but is otherwise disinterested and just sort of a spectator? If that's the case, then maybe the rest of life is up to us. It's all up to the forces of the world. It's up to chance and and to luck and accidents and coincidences. But how do we make sense of it all? How is it possible for an all-sovereign God to also be completely good? Are the most difficult, trying, painful aspects of your life just as much a result of God's providence as the most wonderful, fulfilling times in your life. In Acts 17, 
We're told in verse 22, the Apostle Paul stands in a place called the Areopagus, otherwise known as Mars Hill. And he delivers this powerful, truth-filled proclamation regarding the one true and living God of all the universe. And a significant part of what Paul has to say with regard to God's providence is right here as he responds to what he assumes are many of the objections the men of Athens had to God. Now, Mars Hill was a place where, where the council of justice met in the open air, and they would, uh, they would meet on the hill, and they would deliberate, and they would uh, philosophize, and they would theologize, and they would tell fishing stories and whatever else men do when they get together and one-up each other. Day by day, this is what was going on there. But there were also many different gods they were worshiping, and Paul's address for them is brilliant. It is tactful. So let's begin uh, to get context in verse 22, and we'll read down through the end of chapter 17. Acts 17, beginning in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring." Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imaginations of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead." Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus and Arapagate, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. Now before we get too far down the road, it's important for us to define our terms. What is divine providence. I want to give us two definitions. Um, Both of them agree with one another, but one is more complex than the other. The first is from J.I. Packer. Here's how he defines providence. The unceasing activity of the Creator, whereby in overflowing bounty and goodwill, He upholds His creatures in ordered existence, guides and governs all events, circumstances, and free acts of angels and men, and directs everything to its appointed goal for his own glory. Well, the second one is a little simpler. Jerry Bridges, he says this, Providence is God's constant care for and his absolute rule over all his creation for his own glory and the good of his people. Now, I hope you 
remember some of the specific elements of each of these definitions. They talk about unceasing activity and constant care. God never takes a break. He is always at work. He never rests. Talks about all events and all acts and all creation. Nothing is excluded from God's providence. Nothing escapes the hand of God. We see that they define providence as God directing everything, having absolute rule. Nothing is happening outside the will of God. And I want to prove that to you this morning. We also see that everything that happens, God does for His own glory. His design of all things ultimately is that He is glorified and also for the good of His people. That what is good for us is accomplished. And all of this leaves us to ask a question. All these things we've looked at already. Is God trustworthy? Which is really the condensed way of asking the same two questions that Rabbi Kushner asked. The first being, can God always care for us? In other words, is He sovereign? And the second question is, does He always care for us? In other words, is He good? That's the foundation I want us to build on as we tackle one of the more pressing questions in the Christian life. Now, as we consider Paul's address, notice in verses 26 through 28, he brings to the forefront the doctrine of providence. In verses 26 and 28, we see our first point this morning, that the world is governed and upheld by the hand and wisdom of God, and human affairs do not come about by chance. Now, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, the Apostle Paul writes this powerful description of the work of Jesus Christ in creating and upholding the entire universe. And if you aren't familiar with Colossians 1, I urge you to be so, that we would dwell there every day that we'd think about these great truths. Paul writes this, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. In other words, Paul is saying in Christ the universe consists, is held together, is sustained second by second, minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, decade by decade. What am I missing? Century by century, millennium by millennium, the Lord Jesus is reigning and holding it all together. Not a single hair falls from your head, not a single grain of sand from the wing of a sparrow without the Lord knowing it, ordaining it, and governing it. He is in complete control over earthquakes, over tsunamis, over floods and tornadoes and hurricanes over Boko Haram and ISIS and political parties and media and education and cancer and AIDS and false teachers and world religions and technology and space and Satan and demons and angels and powers and principalities and everything that has been, is being, or ever will be created to include the very breath in your lungs, every grain of sand in the sea, every molecule in the atmosphere." 
as Abraham Kuyper wrote, there is not a square inch in the whole dominion of our existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And if even one half of a second... God decided to stop upholding and sustaining all of creation, it would completely fall and disintegrate into nothingness. It is God's sovereignty and providence that that gives anything and everything the properties that it has, its existence and its meaning. So if God is not there, if God is dead you are dead, and I am dead, the nations, the stars, the planets, the galaxies, Satan and his minions, and the angels of heaven are all dead as well. But we know from God's word, in Christ, all things hold together. The apostle tells us in Hebrews 1.3, we read, the Son is sustaining all things by his powerful word. Nothing exists of its own inherent power of being. Nothing in all creation stands or acts independently of the, of the power of God. Are there laws of nature like gravity and energy? Yes. But they are nothing more than physical expressions of the will of Christ. Gravity remains gravity because Christ wills it to remain gravity. The very ground I'm standing on right now is held together because the atoms and molecules in the ground are held in place by the active will of Christ. All of creation sings this very song. Isaiah 40 says, He brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls them each by name because of His great power and mighty strength. Not one of them is missing. You ever try and count the stars in the sky? Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 6 says that God gives life to everything. Psalm 147 tells us he supplies the earth with rain and makes grass grow on the hills. He provides food for the cattle and for the young ravens when they call. God didn't just put a few things together and sit down and watch it all work itself out. He doesn't create and leave. He is intricately, he is actively involved in even the most minute details of every aspect, of every part, of everything in the created, visible, and invisible world. Now further, the Bible teaches that God sustains you and me. That's what Paul is saying in Acts 17, verse 28. In him we live and move and have our being. And notice, the very places you live and work and do your shopping and go about your hobbies, that's all determined by God. He has purposed everything. Verse 26, for mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. So in many ways, we've already answered one of the leading questions but especially this first one. Can God always care for us? Can He do it? Is He sovereign? He is absolutely, totally, 100% sovereign. He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. So to answer this question, we give an undiluted, unequivocal yes. The great Puritan pastor John Flavel wrote, Oh, look to the hand of God in all, and know that neither your comforts nor afflictions do arise out of the dust or spring up out of the ground. Now, Rabbi Kushner, who I mentioned earlier, writes in his book, 
Some of us are dealing with this right now. Insurance companies refer to earthquakes, hurricanes, tornadoes, and various other natural disasters as what? Acts of God. Right? It's one of the only places the world acknowledges God because they don't want to pay for it. (laughs) And that's true. Insurance companies have a clause called Acts of God, and it goes on to explain what they do and don't cover uh, when something like that happens. And so Kushner thinks about this, and he writes this. I consider insurance companies referring to acts of God a case of using God's name in vain. I don't believe that an earthquake that kills thousands of innocent victims without reason is an act of God. It is an act of nature. Nature is morally blind without values. It turns along, follows its own laws, not caring who or what gets in the way. Now, what has Kushner done? Kushner has made his own God. Because the Bible says nothing of nature doing what nature does apart from God's willing it to do so. And when Jesus was relaying this reality to his disciples, he presented the fact that the dirty, cheap birds called sparrows that are sold for two pennies will not fall to the ground apart from God's will. So man has no need to fear because we are far more valuable than these birds because God created us in his own image. So when I think about what Kushner writes, or I think back to comments like a Bible study leader saying, God has nothing to do with this, there's no hope in that. I have to stop and think, does, does God care about a sparrow falling from the ground but turn his back and look the other way when it comes to suffering and disease? A sparrow cannot fall to the ground without the Lord willing it, but apparently a man created in his own image can can contract a disease without God having anything to do with it at all. And sadly, many people replace the doctrine of divine providence with the doctrine of chance, eliminating God from the picture altogether. We don't have to do that. We have a great and glorious God who does all things according to his purposes and he created the universe and all that's in it. So even though we don't always understand, even though we don't always comprehend, should we not say with the Apostle Paul to ourselves, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? Every time we see someone trying to explain away the divine providence of God, we see them trying to mount a rescue operation. They're trying to get God off the hook for something. They're trying to rescue him from accusations that he's involved in things that we see in our finite understanding and think them inexplicable and horrific. But God is big enough, God is powerful enough that he doesn't need you or me to get him off the hook for anything. He takes full responsibility for his actions without excuse and often without explanation. Now, there are a lot of questions in that that could still be answered, that we have to wrestle with and think through. Do our decisions still matter? Yes, they matter profoundly. Does what we do and how we do it matter? Absolutely. But we have to affirm up front, first and foremost, that God is in control of everything. And so it leaves us with the second question. Does God always care for us? Paul responds in verse 27. He teaches us that God's designs are good. 
in providing the way of life to mankind. What is the ultimate purpose Paul gives for why God does what he does in his providence? He says in verse 27, that man should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. The greatest thing God can do for us is to make himself known to us, and he has done so. In Romans 1.20, Paul elaborates on the fact that God has revealed himself to us in all creation. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. Romans 1.20. Brothers and sisters, there's no, there's no reason why we should think otherwise. And the, the men in the Areopagus were worshiping idols and even had an altar to the unknown God because of this reality. They knew, and you know, there is a great and glorious God worthy of all of our worship. And everyone everywhere knows that. Everyone knows God profoundly. But Paul goes on to explain in Romans, that leaves everyone without excuse. The problem isn't a lack of information or insight. The problem is man's depravity. The problem is man's unwillingness to bend his knee in worship and obedience to the one true and living God. And so instead of submitting to God, we suppress the truth about God in unrighteousness and are in need of the regenerating work of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, and the gospel of Jesus Christ to bring us to faith and repentance. And that being said, God is perfectly just in writing all of us off and condemning all of us forever. He has every right to do that because He made us. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show His immeasurable riches and the grace of His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He could have destroyed every one of us, but God loved us. Brethren, our question about salvation should never be, why does God choose to save some and not others? Our question about salvation should be, why has God chosen to save anyone at all? And the answer, because he's glorified in being merciful, and he loves his own, and he gives his son that we might live. So if you're a believer, if you are united to the Lord Jesus Christ, God ordained everything every aspect of your life to come to pass in such a way that you would hear and believe the gospel and that the God you knew generally would become a God that you would love and worship and honor and adore specifically in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. God did that. And if you're here right now and you're not a Christian, the God who created you and has given you breath and life this very second... This this very moment, right here and right now, he ordained that you would be here to hear me tell you that apart from Christ you have no hope, apart from Christ you have no help, apart from Christ you have no life, but in Christ you have all that you need. All of the help, all of the assurance, all of the peace, all of the joy, all life everlasting. Uh, It's not to say life will be easy on this earth. 
but life with assurance. Life with knowing that whatever comes to pass in the end is for my good and for God's glory. And if that's not God caring for us, if that's not a God who's trustworthy, I don't even know what those words mean. Friend, if, you're, if you think you're here by accident, you're not. I don't mean existing, I mean here, I mean in that seat right now. Hear me. Turn to Christ, put your trust in Him because He is trustworthy and He is faithful and He will save you. I want to give us an example from Scripture of all of this coming together and then we'll be done. God's providential care over the extent of a person's entire life. What does that look like in a way that we can conceptualize? Because We can say God is doing that in our lives now, but we don't know what's in the future, and we can't see back over the past how everything has aligned to be what it is today. So I want us to think about the life of Joseph from the book of Genesis. Chapters 37 through 50 give us a picture of Joseph's life. Now, I promise I'm not going to do an exposition of all those chapters, but I want to think of the big events that happen in Joseph's life. Now, we learn that Joseph... A young shepherd boy was the favorite of his father's sons. He was always giving his report to his father about his brother, otherwise known as a tattletale. And as a result of being the father's favorite and being a tattletale, his brothers thought he was the greatest person in the world. No, they hated him. They resented him. At one point, their father Jacob gave Joseph a multicolored coat as a gift, and gave nothing to his brothers, and so they all hated him all the more. Even worse, Joseph starts telling everyone, as the youngest brother, that one day he's going to rule over them, and they're all going to bow down to him, and so they were left in complete and total anger and outrage, and they decided, we're going to kill him. (laughs) Well, they go to kill him. Having the slightest bit of an issue with this in his conscience, the oldest brother, Reuben, doesn't want to kill him outright, so they decide and said, well, let's just sell him into slavery. Let's be merciful. Let's not kill him. Let's put him into a life of servitude. (laughs) So they sell him off as a slave, and they go back and they tell their father he was killed by wild beasts in the wilderness. Sorry, Dad. You have to like us now. So Joseph is sold, and eventually, as he's sold, he ends up in a high-ranking Egyptian home, and that Egyptian's name was Potiphar, and he eventually becomes the supervisor of Potiphar's household. In Genesis 39, we read how Joseph excelled at his duties, and he became one of Potiphar's most trusted servants, and he was put in charge over the whole household. And Potiphar could see that whatever Joseph did, God looked upon him favorably and prospered all that he did. However, Potiphar's wife attempted to seduce Joseph. And when he rejected her and he ran away from her, she falsely accused him of attempting to rape her. So Joseph, although innocent in the matter, is, of course, cast into prison by Potiphar. 
Now Potiphar's in jail. What does he do in jail? He interprets the dreams of his fellow prisoners, and they come to pass. The interpretations prove to be true. And one of the men is later released, and he said, hey, when I get out, thanks, I'll remember you. Oops, I forgot you. I'm out now. Uh, And it was two years later when all of a sudden Potiphar, uh, the king is having dreams, and the cupbearer, that was released two years earlier, remembers, hey, there's this guy in prison, and he can interpret dreams. So the king calls for Joseph, tells him his dreams. Joseph predicts seven years of bountiful harvest, followed by seven years of severe famine in Egypt, and advises the king to begin storing grain in preparation for the day of need. And for his wisdom, Joseph is eventually made a ruler in Egypt, and he is second only to the king in power. And seven years later... After seven years of plenty, the famine strikes. Everyone is affected, even the land of Canaan. And so Jacob sends 10 of his sons to Egypt to buy grain. Now, while there, they don't recognize who he is. But they come into contact with their brother Joseph, who they sold off many, many years earlier. Now, unbeknownst to him, his early prophecy of them bowing down to him was fulfilled as they bowed down to him because now he's this great leader. Eventually, Joseph reveals his identity to his brothers. He forgives their wrongdoing. And Jacob and his family move to Egypt to be with Joseph, and Jacob's descendants stay in Egypt for 400 years until the time of Moses. And when Moses leads the Hebrews out of Egypt, he takes the remains of Joseph with him, as was requested. That is quite a life, isn't it? Sold into slavery, imprisoned for crimes he didn't commit, years upon years in waiting and confinement and poor conditions, eventually brought to a place of prominence and power, only to be able to turn it around in the end and serve the very family that had, been, uh, that had abandoned him and wished him dead many, many years before. And so, of course, his brothers were frightened when they learned about who he was and what position he was in now, recounting all that they did, And we could expect Joseph to be, I don't know, a little upset about the circumstances. But what does he say? In one of the greatest statements in all of Scripture regarding the providence of God, Genesis 50, 20, Joseph looks at his brothers and he says, As for you, you meant evil against me. But God, God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Do you see this? We look at his brother's actions and clearly they were sinful and they are responsible for those actions, 100%. Potiphar's wife put Joseph in a bad position. She was a temptress. She was a Jezebel and she's responsible for that and it landed him in prison. She is 100% responsible. His fellow prisoners forgot about him. He was there two additional years. But it was because the time was not right for him to come and interpret the king's dreams at the right exact time that he would be put in a place of prominence to serve his family in the end. It's a remarkable story. And guess what? Your story is just like it. 
Your story is just like the story of Joseph's. Now, you may not be sold into slavery and accused of horrendous crimes that you don't commit, but the details of your life that are difficult, the trials you endure, the suffering you walk through, the problems you encounter, all of the times where things are difficult, you'll be prone to question God and to grumble and to complain and be frustrated, but God's ends are better than your ends, and God's ways are better than your ways. So while everything around Raid against you in this world might in, be intended for your harm, and often it is because the intentions of the world are evil. God is 100% irrevocably for you, and He intends all of it for your good. And what does He say? We sing it Fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God and will still give you aid. I'll strengthen and help you and cause you to stand upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. Fear not, dear saint. God is with you. He will not leave you. He loves you. He's in control of even the smallest details of your life. And all of it's for your good. It's all for our good. Amen.